Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I hope you brought your snorkeling gear because today we are talking about fish. I know this is a plant podcast, but I can't harp on the idea that plants are habitat enough. And there's no better way to illustrate that than to talk about how plants are involved in the greater ecological health of the myriad organisms we share this planet with. Today we are joined by Evan Pellinger of Conservation Fisheries, Inc., and they are doing incredible work to keep North America's amazing fish diversity on the landscape for future generations to appreciate. And this is an excellent conversation because we really dive into the ecological nature of this work and why plants are so important in creating habitat that these fish can thrive in. I don't want to steal any of Evan's thunder. It's an amazing conversation and really an inspiring conversation. There's a lot of things to celebrate and many more successes to come over the horizon. But conversations like this can't happen unless you support this show. There's a lot of great ways to do that, and one of the best is to pick up a copy of my book. All of the links are in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com. Just navigate down to each episode where I put all of the relevant links. But that's entirely enough out of me. I don't want to keep you from this any longer. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Evan Pellinger. I hope you enjoy. Evan Pellinger, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to pick your brain today, but let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Hey, yeah. Um, I'm Evan. I'm a conservation biologist with Conservation Fisheries, and I'm also the staff ecologist for Murgo Gardens, which is a native plant landscaping organization. Nice. Um, so I, on the fisheries side, um, we do a lot of work both with captive propagation of rare and endangered species, but also wild monitoring of those species um, and looking for things that have been missing for long periods of time. Hmm. Um, A lot of that kind of overall habitat evaluation to also think about like, where could we put things back? Um, And that process really gave me an appreciation for the terrestrial ecologies Hmm. as well, which made me want to get involved in the native plant side of things too. Excellent. That's really cool. And that kind of beats me to my next question a little bit there. Like, where did it all kind of begin? I mean, were you really into fisheries as a kid growing up or just kind of nature nut? And then it evolved over time into something like this. Like where, where did you kind of find your, your way into this field? Yeah, it's, it was kind of a weird way in. I, as like a really young kid, I think it was like three or four years old, we were on a business trip for my dad. And my mom was like trying to keep us kids entertained and took us to an aquarium. Nice. And I saw, um, it was in Vancouver and they had, um, I think they were like boat stri- boat struck orcas. Aww. Um, and they were, had them in like a hospital tank or something. Uh I don't, again, I was like three or four. I don't really remember that well, (laughs) but I remember seeing orcas and being like blown away. Yeah. Um, but then like I went back to where I'm from, which is Minnesota and there are no orcas anywhere nearby. (laughs) You sure? Uh, No. (laughs) Yeah. It'd be cool if they were in the Great Lakes, but. (laughs) Be pretty wild. So, right. Um, that like i was like well i'm really interested in aquatic life so and i've got the mississippi river right there yeah so i want to start like learning about what is around me um so i went like full deep dive intense interest in aquatic ecology and eventually uh like I was out fishing with a family friend one time and I caught a male pumpkin seed sunfish, which if you guys don't know what they are, you got to look them up. They're beautiful little fish. Um, I was blown away. I was like, this is an awesome fish. (laughs) I want to keep it. And, uh, my dad's friend who had taken me out was like, yeah, uh, 
it's a little small to fillet and i was like absolutely not i mean <laughs> i want to like have this animal <laughs> yeah and so i can look at it yeah um and my parents had this like little tiny point like koi pond nice. in their backyard and um but there hadn't been any fish in it for like a couple of years and i was like i'm gonna put it in that and raise it and i did nice um for any game wardens listening, that is legal in Minnesota. <laughs> good, good catch, <laughs> <I> was, good catch. <laughs> I was fully within the law, at least at the time. Nice. <laughs> um, so I ended up, it spawned in the pond. Oh, wow. And like, it was a really cool experience. And it just totally made me go that much deeper. Yeah. Um, and there's very little information about keeping native fishes in aquaria and ponds on the internet. Um, so I was just like reading and reading everything I could. And I found this organization called uh, the North American Native Fish Association. Nice. Uh, NANFA for short. Uh, they're a great organization. Does a lot. Of, they do a lot of educational stuff, but also just getting people in contact with what's in their backyard. Um, and I convinced my parents when I was like, I think I was in like sixth, sixth or seventh grade. I convinced my parents like, look guys, this is what I'm going to do with my life. I have to go to one of these <laughs> annual meetings. <laughs> yeah, this has to happen. <laughs> yeah. I was like, there's no other way I could see my life going forward from this point. So uh, I guess um, on the angsty teen thing, it could have been way worse. <laughs> like, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my dad's friend who had initially taken me fishing was like, I'll go with you. We're going to make a road trip out of this. And nice. we did. Um, and we went to this meeting in like rural Ohio. Sweet. And I saw a bunch of cool fish. And I met this guy uh, named Conrad Schmidt who was the former uh, non-game fisheries director for the uh, state of Minnesota. Oh, wow. Um, and he had retired and they hadn't really filled his position after he had retired. So he just kept doing the work. <laughs> <laughs> he was cool. that kind of person. Yeah, He's like, not? I'm really passionate. The work needs to be done. No one else is doing it. I guess I will. And so I spent the next, gosh, like six, six or seven summers with him in the field. Dang. Um, starting again in like sixth or seventh grade. Um, and I just spent a lot of time learning my fish, <laughs> learning the ecology and doing uh, fish distribution work, um, wow. which is really cool. Yeah. I mean, what a way to get into the field. I mean, just like totally steeped in it from when you're basically a sponge at that point, like taking it all in and just working through, but like learning how to do it the way you do it professionally. I mean, that is just phenomenal experience to really get you started. It it was awesome. I mean, I don't think I could do that now. Right. I don't think I could right. learn the amount yeah. of things I learned in that time now. Um, it's it's really wild and like i think that's such an important thing that i encourage a lot of people to do like i always have friends asking me like how did i get into the field because it's so hard to get like a full-time position yeah in this field or in any of the conservation fields oh god yeah um and like i really think that just having a ton of experience regardless of like whether or not it's work experience right but having a ton of field experience in a way that makes you very good to be in the field with mm -hmm. like that is huge big time super undervalued um because like if you go out in the field with someone and you just have a good time and you feel like you get everything <laughs> you need done and you had fun and everything went smoothly like those are huge marks in your favor big time because it's so, so like, easy when it doesn't. I mean, it is so totally. often it doesn't, right? It just yes, <laughs> yeah. So like just spending that time and getting the getting the hiccups out of the way before you're in like a really professional, high intensity setting, yeah, is super helpful. Um, but yeah, I I was doing that work 
for a while, um, started going to school in at the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse. Oh, nice. Um, and I was like, you know, they were just starting out their aquatic program. And so most of my classes were really like, they were biology and ecology classes, but it always tilted back to like medicine mm, because yeah. most of the kids were pre-med. Yep. And I, it was like deeply jading for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You and many, many others, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I was not feeling good about how, you know, getting through academia and all of that. Um, and this job opening popped up with conservation fisheries. I had known several of the people in the organization for a while, um, mm -hmm. spent some time in the field with them because I, I would travel all over the country to do field work. Oh, wow. Nice. Um, and just see cool animals. Right. Um, so I had a bit of an in and they were specifically looking for someone with a good combination of field experience and captive care experience, which is pretty rare in the field. Mm -hmm. um, and I had been breeding fish in my parents' basement <laughs> for pretty much the whole time I was doing field work. Nice. So it just worked out really well. And I moved down here and I've been down here for coming up on six years. Oh, wow. Congrats. That is a Thanks. really cool and just dedication, right? Like you said, just getting out there, loving it, and just being willing to do it, being willing to travel, being willing to often make no money <laughs> in many cases, totally. but just doing it for the love of the game, right? And it, yeah. it's it's fascinating the the sort of parallels, right? Like you kind of said, it is it's the conservation field in general is is geared in much the same way. But I I was jaded by academia, you know, the whole medicine based sort of viewpoint that most programs take and then yeah you get to this point where you just kind of go like I'm dealing with a lot of people that are academically involved in this but I don't know any or many of them that are also good at growing things so there's there's a lot of parallels in our fields but totally now you've managed to come together and bring sort of experience from different viewpoints and I'm sure being out in nature as much as you were being willing to get into the thick of it so to speak exposed you to a lot more than you even realized was applicable to where you ended up taking it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's one of the huge aspects of conservation fisheries as an organization. Um, our founders were both at Nair students. Um, hmm. And if you're all engaged in the, like, at, at this point, I think he he has described species in like eight taxa. Wow. But <laughs> he, he's wild. Uh, he very, very proficient biologist and a general naturalist. Yeah. Right. Like he was not, he was very fish focused, but he's worked with small mammals. He's worked with a lot of different insects. Um, I think he's even done bat work. Oh, wow. um, he, hmm. He's, all over the place. He was just one of those people. Uh, he actually passed earlier this year. Oh, that sucks. Um, yeah. It, but he was just one of those people who had a genuine love of the natural world. Yeah. And he imparted that on all of his students. And so CFI like comes from that incredible foundation of this like generalist naturalist background. And I think that's like super key for a functional conservation organization yeah um there are so many people doing really great work but it's so specialized mm -hmm. that it, it's hard to turn it into something applicable yeah you know big time um and i think like with that kind of general naturalist background you're able to be a part of that whole process from, okay, we have this highly endangered species. First, you know, where should we find it? Um, how do we take care of it in captivity? How do we successfully raise those larvae? And where do we put it? Mm -hmm. um, and those are all like major questions yeah. that can be pretty hard to answer. But if you get a bunch of people in a room who all have like these kinds of 
diverse backgrounds in their perspective on ecology and how they approach any question like that, you know, you're able to come up with some really incredible solutions. Big time. And be creative too. And that's really like what I love so much about following conservation fisheries on social media and stuff like shout out to your colleague Aster who made us, you know, put this connection in place yeah. um, is just the holistic viewpoint y'all take with your, your efforts to save fish, right? It's not about look at this fish. It's only the fish. It's the fish disembodied from whatever context it evolved in, whatever context that needs to survive. You all definitely put them into context. You show the habitats, you talk about what's being done in the lab and also what needs to be done to make sure that whatever you're dealing with is going to survive when you do get it back in the wild. And it's so cool to see the loop that you guys put so much effort into demonstrating, but doing practically is raising them in the captivity, getting them back out into the wild. And that is such a message that needs to be amplified in conservation is like, we can do it right. <laughs> yeah, totally. And like there are successes, you know, um, a really great one is one of the first species that CFI started working with, um, which is yellowfin mad tom. So yellowfin mad tom and smoky mad tom are two little catfishes. I mean, they get the biggest yellowfin mad tom I've ever seen was maybe five inches long. Dang, tiny guys. <laughs> I mean, not big fish, yeah. right? Um, but they were actually, I believe both of them were described as extinct species. Whoa. Yeah. It's sad when that happens. <laughs> Described from specimens um, in a specimens collection. Um, and the person who described, I believe it was a smoky matom, he had described it, come down here, looked for them, couldn't find anything, um, and then declared it extinct. Um, and a similar story for yellowfin matom, but in the, I think it was starting in like the 70s, um, TVA found a yellowfin mat tom. Mm. And then in the 80s, uh, another population was found and also uh, smoky mat tom were rediscovered. Wow. Um, just a huge, I mean, that doesn't happen yeah, that often. And, and then like <laughs> right? of all the, organ like TVA, you they're doing good work, but like, that's not their main goal is going out looking for fish. So like, what are the odds? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's kind of wild. Um, TVA is kind of the source of a lot of the woes of aquatic biodiversity in so Southern Appalachia, mm -hmm. but they've also done some of the best work doing data gathering since then. Yeah. They have some incredible field crews that are doing really awesome work with tracking species and then making modifications to how they run their operation to try to better outcomes for some right. of these animals. Um, but yeah, like with that discovery, uh, Dr. David Etnire told our two founders, uh, Pat Rakes and J.R. Shute, who were his students at the time, he was like, hey, you guys, you guys are both into keeping aquariums. <laughs> I think you guys should learn how to breed these fish wow. so we can get them back out on the landscape outside of this one creek where they were doing pretty well. Yeah. Um, and so JR owned an aquarium store and he set up a couple of tanks in a back room and they just started trying it. Wow. Yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> it's pretty unique, and that can never happen now. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, is, oh man, but, the red tape. But yeah, but they they got in at the right time, and they had had knew some of the right people who were making these discoveries, and they were just good. I mean, we joke they have like the blue thumb. <laughs> That's you <know>? awesome. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, they 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 just started working with them, and. No. uh pretty quickly had some good success with propagation um, and started doing some small scale restocking efforts and refining their, refining their techniques and working in some new streams. Um, and after some initial success in Abrams Creek, which is a pretty well-known stream in Southern Appalachia, you know, there's, there's a big campground on it. A lot of people have been mm -hmm. there, but a lot of people don't know that it was completely poisoned out. In wow the wow yeah Oof. the you know 
some misguided biologists were like, hey, we could have a great trout fishery if we just get rid of everything else. Um, so it's completely rote and owned out. Um, nearly 100% kill. And uh, they stocked trout that did not do well. <laughs> and so it just ended huh. up being an empty stream. So depressing. Yeah. Oof. Um, but the one positive in a way of that is it there was a lot of it there's a big empty niche yeah. a couple big empty niches and um some of the i think uh smoky mad tom and yellowfin mad tom the samples that describe those species i could be wrong but it was at least one of them that sample was from abrams creek oh nice so we had good reason to believe that they were present historically yeah, and that they would be worthwhile restocking in that stream. Huh. Um, and with that open niche, it felt like a really good opportunity to give this, these two species a good range to really yeah. take off. So they did it and they had some pretty strong signs of success pretty quickly. I think it was only a few years before they started seeing wild reproduction, Dang. which is huge. That's right. Awesome. Like, yeah. Um, so they, they felt really good about it and us fish and wildlife service and all the other partner agencies were pretty happy with those results <laughs> and they just kept growing until now, uh, CFIs worked with Aster will, would have the exact number, but I believe it's 83 species. Dang. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, a huge, huge swath of animals from a bunch of different genera um and it's a, every single one is so unique mm -hmm. and so different in what you need to be able to how to meet its needs what it needs to successfully reproduce and also how to raise the young i mean every yeah. larval fish is totally different <laughs> man i'm just thinking of my days with like uh uh, convict cichlids and being like, I'm good at this. And then you try one other thing. You're like, I'm terrible at this, but you know, there's a, like you, every organism is different and that is, there's no exception to that rule. And that's what's kind of fun and challenging about this field. But when you think about the reasons that the habitat can no longer support them, it's a laundry list, I'm sure. But when you working for CFI looking to do the, the the most important part of this, which is getting these fish back out onto the landscape, into the habitats, like it's got to come down to watershed health, right? And, and I, a wise friend Absolutely. once said, plants are truly the architects of a healthy watershed. So when you're out, I mean, it's going to vary by species. Like, what are you looking for when you go, this is good, this is probably not so good? Like, how are you ranking it? And are plants a big factor in that? Yeah, I mean... It even comes down to scheduling field work is based <laughs> on the plant community. Wow. Right? Like if if you're looking at a stream, like a lot of the streams coming out of Southwest Virginia that are just heavily have, you know, really intense agriculture, mm -hmm. you know, right. The last several years with uh, some of these long drought periods, throughout the summer, we can't work in Southwest Virginia for most of the summer because Bummer. the water is so turbid Oh wow! from all of the inputs and having no riparian buffer, or very minimal riparian buffer. It's just unworkable mm -hmm. um, versus, you know, a stream that's coming out of the Smoky Mountain National uh, National Park. You know, it can rain the day before and we can go out and odds are it'll be clear. Yeah. And like from the very point of scheduling field work, we're thinking about the local plant community. Um, so then once we're out there, you know, you're looking at a lot of different factors in terms of, in terms of the surrounding ecology i mean a lot of our species that are these kind of more montane species you're looking for a really healthy forest community mm. right um you want older trees you want a robust ground layer but you also don't want a bunch of invasive plants that are 
but you know, you get this effect, right? Where if you have a small stream that's totally canopied by like bush honeysuckle, yeah, there are no, almost no native insects that are oh, using bush honeysuckle yeah. in any meaningful way, which means that you're missing like a whole trophic layer. Wow. Yeah. It severely reduces the productivity of a stream, especially for some of these more specialized animals that we're working with. Huh. Um, yeah. It's good to hear that from a, like sort of a few steps on the food chain removed, right? Because the the big talk in the native plant world right now is for good reason talking about the the host plant, you know, the insects that are feeding them. A lot yep. of times it's caterpillars or what whatnot, but you know, that they are food for something else. I love butterflies, but I also like when things are eating caterpillars and, you know, it's yeah. really good to hear that not good that it the invasion is there obviously but like it's good to make right. those connections that you know this this invasion front that we're dealing with uh it, it's affecting so many things literally downstream from where it's happening because a lot of times the arguments are like well at least something's there it's like yeah but th there could be something better there for the local organisms that depend on it yeah absolutely and you know a lot of these invasive species have the wrong root structure or you know, maybe our nitrogen fixings are over nutrifying the surrounding wow. soil. You know, autumn olive is a good example of that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's anything published about potential downstream effects, sure. but I wouldn't be surprised to find that that is contributing in some of these really dense stands where you have like a small headwater stream that during certain parts of the year isn't flowing. I could totally see nitrogen poisoning being an issue in those settings. And a lot of our rarest fish in Southern Appalachia are these small headwater species. Right. Where those nutrients, you know, a lot yeah. of these animals, I mean, yeah, those like nutrient you know, inputs would be so background level would naturally be very low. So yeah, it, that, there's a great thesis right there. People listening. <laughs> yes. Someone, <laughs> someone look into it. Cause I've had, I thought about that so many times where I'm standing in like, acres of autumn olive mm -hmm. and there's like a little pool right like, there's got to be some effect there yeah, right? exactly yeah and i've seen it in my own work you know it's one of those sanity checks where you're doing leaf samples you're looking at leaf nitrogen and you're going okay the nitrogen fixers have way more we're doing something in the methods right but that's all stuff that goes down back into the soil and then back into the watershed or directly into the water and then is the yeah. decomposition which you know, even if it's not a directly affecting the fish, I'm guessing it's affecting whatever macroinvertebrates the fish are then feeding on. That too. Um, I'm I'm really excited to see how, you know, hopefully I live long enough to see some of these effects, <laughs> but American chestnut reintroduction, like yeah. what is that going to do to our headwater stream species? Right, right. You know? it's There's so many unknowns that like, the whole idea of the, all the low hanging fruits gone, like they got it in the sixties and seventies and science is boring now. No, no, there's more unknowns. And especially for things that like yeah. are less abundant than they were before, or have a chance to be coming back. I mean, this is really the, the, the forefront of where restoration science can go. And, and you all are playing a big part of that by seeing, you know, how different pieces react to different scenarios in that sort of bigger picture. Yeah, absolutely. And like, there's there's other interactions too, you know. I don't want to simplify it to, you know. There's a lot of conversation in the southeast right now about maybe we shouldn't be focusing so much on forests, and maybe mm. maybe we need more about our grasslands. Right. And uh, similarly, like I think a great example of that from the fish community are uh, Baron's top minnow. Ooh, do so, tell. <laughs> they're they're cool little fungulus, uh, just like our North American killifishes. Oh, God, um, those! They're super cute. Um, they're found on the Barrens Plateau in Middle Tennessee, and they are, they are one of the most endangered animals I've ever worked with. Wow. Um, there have been points while I've worked at CFI where an entire population existed exclusively in our building oh no pressure <laughs> no pressure <laughs> right yeah you're doing a water change and it's like man i really hope i don't mess anything wow, up yeah <laughs> but it, it's it's really intense um but that species right it's it's this barren's plateau species um 
that's found in these little spring fed streams that flow through like pastures. Wow. Right. Um, historically it would have been, you know, like a prairie stream. Yeah. Um, but they actually did pretty well post colonization from mm-hmm. every, all the evidence we have um, because a lot of people were maintaining a fairly similar habitat through grazing, uh, right? Okay. Small family farms, you know, it's not an overwhelming pressure of cattle, but mm. it's enough to keep the habitat pretty similar. Right. Um, and keep a lot of that grass dominated, you know, that they're, they're eating a lot of, of insects that are just falling into the stream. Interesting. Huge part of their diet. So they need those overhanging grasses. Um, but also very critically, they need an open canopy because they lay their eggs in hair algae. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's it's pretty cool. That stuff does have a function in nature. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, no, every aquarist is like oh, yeah <laughs> damn i guess I, I gotta hand it to hair algae nice but, uh, wow fascinating yeah, they, yeah so as as our economic system has evolved in the u.s you know it has become less tenable to be a small farm owner mm. you know so you have a lot of these huge CAFO projects right and so one of two things happens either one the overwhelming pressure of cattle uh, just pounds the stream bed into this like one inch deep, oh, 20 God. foot wide mud pit Oof. that is Nothing. not going to be a good place for fish. Yeah. Um, or they get fenced out of this, like the stream or the spring head and then willows grow up Interesting. and completely block the sunlight which means the hair algae doesn't grow, which means they have no spawning substrate. Wow. You have that. Yeah. That and also affects, you know, the food community and all of that. Big time. So you have these spiral effects. And um, I think that's what's so important about the ecological viewpoint, you know, taking it in this full ecology mm-hmm. is really easy to look at water quality alone mm-hmm. in a you know, a stream that's lined with black willow and be like, yeah, it looks great. Yeah. But the ecology's wrong. Yeah. You know, this, this whole system has changed. And it's a fascinating sort of discussion to start introducing, you know, you get that first step, native plants are better, right? It's a lot of objective data pointing to that, but right plant, right place. Right. And, and you got to get the context and, you know, black willow, amazing native tree in the right context, you know, here's a perfect example where the presence of one species very much links to the absence of another one. And that is, it's a hard discussion to have because there's so many nuances to it, but we have to be having it because like you said, there's so much focus right now globally on tree planting, which is awesome if it's done in the right way in the right place, but not everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I really am excited to see kind of the the southeastern grasslands movement really growing right now because yeah. it, it gives me hope for some of these these especially Barron's plateau species that are really dependent on this open canopy prairie stream habitat that are so easy to ignore in comparison to these you know like you know Fish in general don't get a ton of attention from the general public. Sure. But if you're like a really pretty darter, you have yeah. a little bit better chance of getting some love <laughs> than like the, uh, I don't know, think of like uh, spring fish are a good example in the Barrens Plateau. They're, they're the non-cave relative of our cave fishes. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> That's fun. They. They look just like a cave fish, but they have functioning eyes. Oh, well, forget it then. <laughs> you don't stand a chance. Which means that they're just like a little brown thing. Right. <laughs> right. 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 But they really use these these prairie streams. Like that is their core habitat. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot harder to get someone excited about the spring fish than it is the candy darter. Sure. Than it is a brook trout right you know 
Right. And that's, you know, the real impetus for this conversation and conversations similar to it is that ecological perspective. Like, we got to be thinking bigger picture. We got to be thinking context. Like, yes, forest over here, but prairie over here. And, you know, okay, maybe this progenitor of the cool cave fish that is an easy sell isn't as sexy as it could be in public size. I am all for it. Um, but when you start thinking of like, okay, maybe people didn't know grasslands were a thing in the Southeast. Well, okay, that could be a hook. You know, just having the bigger picture conversations at least introduce people to the idea so that maybe every time you drive by uh, a fallow field or a a forestry plantation, you go, okay, maybe we could do something or there could have been potential elsewhere there. Or maybe there is that little pocket left where there is this little pool that is supporting a population. Okay, maybe they can rally a little bit more to protect some smaller habitats in the in the process yeah totally and especially in the southeast you know a lot of our rarest fishes are found in like a pond wow you know these really small pockets of habitat or a a handful of ponds in a single watershed you know so those those little pockets of habitat a lot of times are on private land and it comes down to the private landowner being caring enough about that animal to protect it. Right. Um, you know, the type locality of the Barron's Top Meadow is in someone's backyard. Ooh, wow. That's <laughs> weird to think, but yeah. <laughs> it is a weird situation, but I, we're really fortunate that they've been pretty, pretty caring for this species. Um, you know, in some of the major droughts the last several years, they've called us up to let us know that the pond's drying up and we need to come out and get those fish. Wow. Uh, so we've done several rescue missions of, you know, get as many people out there as we can. I mean, it's not, it's, uh, the pond is barely bigger than my bedroom. You know, it's <laughs> not a big space. Right. But we get a bunch of people out there and get some nets and just catch every single fish we can and take them back to the facility and hold them until we get a good rain. Dang. Wow. <laughs> That's heavy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard yeah. and it takes it takes all sorts of different people, you know. Right. It takes the private landowner who cares, it takes the state agency who will write the permits and give the funding. Mm-hmm. Um it takes the nonprofit who wants to do this difficult and very emotionally trying work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you've had a few sleepless nights, but you know, it's also good to talk about that from the private landowner perspective is is, you know, you have something special. Okay, maybe you want to do the right thing, but you don't want a bunch of people showing up and going, "You can't do this. You can't do this." Like the last thing you want is for your own property to be regulated in that way in a lot of instances. But here's a great example. Like it's about collaborating. It's not about you guys coming in and saying, "Absolutely not. Step back. Your backyard is no longer your backyard." It's how can we work together on this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people um, people get pretty scared sometimes when they see us out surveying and saying we're looking for endangered species. Mm-hmm. They're very worried that it's going to change how they can use a space. But at the end of the day, um, these animals have been on this landscape for a long time, and we'd like to see them continue to be on this landscape for a long time. Yeah. And they've always interacted with people. I think it's really easy as americans to think like history in north america started (laughs) at colonization um but indigenous peoples have been interacting with these animals and these these ecosystems for a very long time Mm -hmm. and um we as people can continue to have these relationships with these animals and it doesn't have to be a negative thing yeah it a hand the Baron Sotmino is a great example of like a totally hands-off relationship is worse for the animal. They need that fire managed space to exist. Thank you. Yes. It is that idea that I think is is sort of ingrained in a lot of uh, you know the the restoration side or the green spaces side, like this idea that the best option is for humans to just not be involved. And you're like, you are ignoring thousands of years of history (laughs) when it comes to this cohabitation it is possible it is possible and we just have to do it a little bit better than we've currently been doing it for the last what two centuries yeah no absolutely i mean we are a part of this ecology 
and we've done a lot of stuff wrong, mm -hmm. but we have the opportunity right now, um, especially in this moment of heightened both issues because of climate change, but also heightened awareness because yeah. of climate change. Um, and we have an opportunity right now to make some changes that, you know, if we do things right, that's, I, I think conservation done right is thinking in the thousand year perspective. It has to be, you know, <laughs> really? Yeah. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. You know, like, I think you could pretty easily make an argument that if you are going to be doing a huge conservation effort for an animal or a ecosystem or anything that doesn't stand the chance of making it to the end of the century if you looked at the carbon costs of that <laughs> you probably are doing more harm exactly yes. if, if you're not thinking in that long-term yeah. way of like how do we have these systems that that can stand the test of time yeah and so, you know, thinking about it in terms of like moving forward and making that relationship better and doing more for this this sort of holistic ecological perspective, you, you brought up this native plant landscaping. And I think, you know, stop me if I'm over assuming here, but like your ability to find suitable habitat for some of these species is it gets harder every day. Right. And so a lot of this big picture idea is trying to restore functionality to habitat, trying to make habitat exist where, like you said, maybe it was nuked with rotenone or maybe it was channelized. You know, there's a lot of different ways rivers and streams and, and freshwater systems in this on this continent have been wrecked. I mean, we, global is just <laughs> too big right now. But yeah, it, it, there has to be some restoration to make sure there is continued habitat for some of these species. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's not really similar to what I was just saying about like this kind of long term perspective. Similarly, if you have to take an ecological perspective, because if we're just dumping thousands of fish into a stream <laughs> that otherwise is the same as it was when these animals were eliminated from that mm -hmm. system, we're just we're wasting a lot of life. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> both our own and the fishes. Um, so we, we have to take this integrated approach. Um, and that's where a lot of our partners come in, whether it's private landowner who's motivated or a landscaping company like I also work for who's working with a private landowner to do some restoration work, state agencies, all of these other federal agencies as well, of course. Um, but there's all of these different people who come into play to make sure that the whole project can be functional right um there's a great example uh we're working in cherokee national forest right now um with some people doing some really innovative stream restoration work that is uh, much lower impact hmm. so instead of bringing in you know a lot I, I think a good perspective right a good point to hit on is like sediment is often the enemy of native or of uh, freshwater ecologies, mm. right? We have all of this extra sediment entering our streams and rivers because of how we use our land. Right. So whether it's impervious surfaces, increasing erosion or tillage in agricultural fields, all of these things free up sediment particles that then come into the river and suffocate the substrate. Yeah. So that substrate layer is important because like there's a lot of a lot of the base of the food chain lives in these interstitial spaces between pieces of gravel right mm -hmm. but that's also where a lot of our native fishes lay their eggs mm -hmm. so an egg you almost have to think about it like like a lung <laughs> that's a good analogy right yeah <laughs> it's this little membrane that you have to get everything in and out of mm -hmm. and if it gets if it's laid down in this gravel and then you know someone decides to like till their field the day before a monsoon rain and we get this huge flush of sediment that comes down and completely covers the egg the egg dies right and you can lose like entire year classes pretty wow. easily with some of these disturbances at the wrong time or continued disturbances yeah. um, and our dams also 
disrupt sediment flow. You know, it means Big that things time. get backed up. It's, it's a really complex system. But what's interesting is despite sediment often being the enemy of freshwater conservation, in our headwaters, we're actually dealing with a lack of sediments. Oh, boy. <laughs> which is a weird thing. Yeah. Oh, nuances. Uh, yeah, right? Yeah. So when, you're, when you look at it from this ecological perspective, you know, a lot of southern Appalachia was clear cut. Mm. Um, so when all of the trees come down and you have these huge rains, you get this stream that previously you know was meandering through the valleys it finds the lowest point of the valley and channelizes itself Mm -hmm. because there's no tree roots creating obstructions there's no tree roots absorbing water and softening the flow it's just like a huge deluge coming down and like carving out this straight channel yeah and because of that because of the lack of the meanders it cuts straight down to bedrock and there's just nowhere for sediment to settle. Uh, okay. So a flat bedrock bottom stream is not a very productive stream because there's just not a lot of surface area. Right, right. You know, you don't have these deep gravel beds where you can have this complex macroinvertebrate community, but you also don't have those deep gravel beds where fish can be laying their eggs. Mm-hmm. Um so in Cherokee National Forest, they're doing some really cool work to re-meander streams. Ooh. Yeah. But usually you think of that kind of work as being like on the scale of hundreds of thousands of dollars per stream mile. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. You know, it's all of this like heavy machinery manually reshaping the stream. And uh, Matt Grove down there is doing some really awesome work and he he got his budget and he was like I could do a couple miles of stream or I can try something new and maybe do a whole valley oh <laughs> cool and the new thing he did was just dropping trees <laughs> oh like you mean like literally just done down yeah wow like they did this whole valley in like two weeks with like three guys with chainsaws (laughs) oh Oh, i can feel my budget lifting like right that's amazing it it was awesome and you know they were like they you know they came at it from like a they're all trout fishermen right Mm. so they're thinking about like how do we fish like how do you fish a stream and you're looking for these like snags created by down trees but they also were like yeah you notice if you spend a lot of time in creeks that you get this sediment deposition around these these trees and it also like forces the water to move in a different way and cut new Hmm. carves and uh he was like i bet we could just drop some some trees in the stream and make it work and in eight months the stream looked totally different wow that quick that quick remarkable he was expecting after doing this this first run that it probably wouldn't work exactly how he expected and they have to try again and then maybe a couple years down the line he could call us to come bring some fish back sure but he ended up calling us in the fall and he was like i think we're ready for fish you guys should come look at this (laughs) like looking at your watches going like what (laughs) yeah Amazing. And we we went out there and we're just blown away by the quality of the stream. Um, put some fish in, and we have reason to believe that we've already had. Uh, this is only, I think we only started stocking like two years ago. Mm-hmm. We believe we have seen some signs of wild reproduction already. Whoa! Wow! What species? Uh, this is Tennessee Dace. Okay. So Tennessee Dace is a little. Again, a little headwater species. <laughs> it's beautiful little fish. Um, everyone should look up a photo of them. They're very cool. Um, during spawning season, they get this like blood red stomach and bright yellow fins. Oh, wow. They're, they're just gorgeous animals. And they are not endangered, but they've undergone some pretty severe range restrictions due to this exact issue mm-hmm. throughout a lot of southern Appalachia. Um, but this, this project is going to be creating what's probably the largest contiguous habitat for, 
uh, Tennessee days. Wow. And could be a great model going forward for doing this kind of restoration um, huh. throughout its range and throughout the range of some of our other headwater species. That is remarkable. I like, got goosebumps hearing that. It's just, again, it's these success stories that can be so uplifting and are so necessary for people to hear. And here's an example of like, okay, we could do it the really hard, really energy intensive way that costs tons of money, or we could mimic nature with a little bit of storm damage and beaver activity. That's yeah. what's doing it in the wild anyway. And and I'm so pleased when people are like, yeah, you know, a lot's on the line, but I'm going to try something different. And that it, you just got to take some risks sometimes. And, and sometimes the rewards are magnificent. I mean, that is so encouraging. Totally. It's really exciting. And it's exciting for me, you know, being on both sides of this, like doing the landscaping work and also doing the conservation work. It was huge confirmation for me that like the landscaping work matters. Yeah. Right. Doing these like often fairly subtle terrestrial alterations can have these huge impacts yeah. downstream. Yeah. And it's really encouraging because it, you know, the thing that I always tell people, it, it's kind of hard sometimes, right? Like when you go through a tour of the hatchery, you're bombarded with a lot of animals that are kind of on the edge of extinction. Mm -hmm. um, and some, you know, we have some great success stories, but some of these animals, there's just nowhere for them to go anymore. Oof, yeah, There is no wild, right? Mm -hmm. Um that's a hard thing to hear, especially <laughs> if you haven't been desensitized right, to it. Right, if you're not in it every day. <laughs> yeah. Um, and a lot of people are like, well, what do I do? Yeah. Right. And obviously, I mean, I got to give the plug. You know, the first thing you could do is donate to yes, conservation fisheries. Yes. But, <laughs> Great donation. But, the, you know, the second thing you can do is think about your personal impact. Right. right? And I think a lot of people kind of bring that up in a shamey way, which isn't super useful. Mm -hmm. And I don't also don't think is super accurate, right? Like yeah. most of these problems are due to major corporations and the way our economic system rewards certain behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's all these huge factors that are outside of any one person's individual actions, right, right? right? But when we're talking about specifically Southern Appalachia, but it applies everywhere, you know, there's a chance that the little creek that runs, you know, through your neighborhood or behind your place of work or whatever contains a unique genetic population of a species mm -hmm. that maybe isn't recognized yet or a handful of things, you know, that there could be something really special there. And on that scale, like making you know, managing your downspouts, all of that kind of thing can have a huge impact on yeah. stream quality. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things where like, w regardless of whether you're near a waterway or not, we all live in a watershed. You know what I mean? There are watershed yeah. maps available. You can see where a drop of water in your yard or on your driveway, where it eventually will end up. And I think that's a really powerful thing because when you start talking about like the native plant movement, landscaping, like things we can do they may be small, but there's billions of us, right? Things add up over time yeah. and we can impact our watershed whether we realize it or not. And it's just about making smarter choices, but you can also be indulgent. That's what I love with like the recent movement with like homegrown national park is like indulge, buy more, have more plants, right? Yeah. Like add more plants to the landscape. That's the kind of thing that I think is really encouraging. Or like you said, manage how water's coming off of your roof if you can help it or reuse your water. Like it's not shame. It's it's like, here's some really cool ways to help out. And it may not seem like much, but it does help. Totally. There's there's also like, if you really get into it, there's almost nothing that is more satisfying than standing at the lowest point of your property <laughs> and watching the water run clear during a big rainstorm. The, the yeah. number of times I've thrown on a rain jacket and boots, <laughs> and like walked down and been like, okay, is everything running clear off of my, <laughs> my little bit of land? And it feels awesome. When yeah. it is. Yeah. 
And the littlest bit goes a long way. I mean, going back to again to like root structure and just plant structure in general and erosion and sediment, like there's areas where I see where even the littlest tuft of grass of all things next to a completely barren chunk of soil, like you can see the difference in what, how much mud is just below that curb surface where there are and are not plants. So like little bits really do go a long way when it comes to the way water's moving across the landscape. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, like there is so much surface area in North America that is in private hands. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it's really easy to be like, well, you know, the nonprofits are working on it. The government's working on it. (laughs) But really, there's such a infinitesimally small amount of land that we really have a lot of control over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it comes down to people caring enough about the place that they live and the other things that live there with them to make sure that we do see these animals make it through the end of the century, through the end of the millennia, you know, right. we continue these processes. And even if you want to be the most selfish, cynical person in the world, like, this is helping your health, your quality of life, the quality of life of your loved ones, your children, whatever your, your people close to you. And, and even if that doesn't matter, your bottom line, you're, you're paying less in taxes due to ecosystem services, like whatever way you want to slice it, like we need healthy ecologies. There's no, we can't have our cake and eat it too there. Totally. I, I promise you it is a lot cheaper to plant a few plants than to like you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the line, pay us to breed a few thousand fish <laughs> back there. Nice. <laughs> I, we all say, you know, we'd love to see a day when our work is not yeah. necessary. But until then, donate. <laughs> yeah, yes, please. <laughs> Evan, this has yeah. been spectacular and encouraging. It is, it is like you said, it, it can be so hard to hear stories of endangerment and potential extinction, but people like you in conservation fisheries putting in the effort and being able to tell happy stories puts wind back in the sails. It shows us that it doesn't actually take all that much. Um, so thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the effort you are doing, your organization, all your colleagues. Again, shout out to Aster for setting this conversation up. Like, Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having us on. It's, it's a great opportunity to talk to folks. And I hope that people feel like activated, but, you know, yeah. do stuff in your landscape. Go snorkeling. Yeah. You wouldn't believe it, but find some clip. Well, make sure that it's like safe. Right. Right. And that like you, <laughs> you get good access. Yeah. But go snorkeling and you will be amazed at what's under the surface yeah. once you just look. Yeah. And then like the last thing, you know, something that's been huge with social media is like thinking about these things creatively. You know, if you're an artist, you can have a huge impact on conservation just by using what you're good at to point to the problem or to point to the solution. Right. It there is so much you can do, even if you feel kind of helpless. Yeah, right? totally. Everyone can have some input here. It, it really does take a village. But, you know, with that in mind, people can see great examples of how artists get involved in stuff by by finding out more about conservation fisheries. So where do they go looking? I will obviously put up links in the show notes, but what's the best place to find out more about what you're doing? Yeah, so you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on TikTok. We should be conservation fisheries or Conservation Fisheries, Inc. on all of those. Nice. Um, and then you can also find us on our website, uh, conservationfisheries.org, I believe. That sounds right to me. <laughs> okay, I'll put up the link. No one needs to yeah. write this down. It's okay. <laughs> but yeah, um, check us out there. We've all, we're always posting. Again, Aster's doing incredible work, really trying to make this stuff visual and easy to take in. Mm. Um, and highly shareable. So please share it because the best, really the best thing you can do is tell other people that these things are out there and that work is being done. Excellent. Well, again, I thank you so much for your time. Before I let you go though, with all of this connection to the ecology and getting into landscaping, do you have a favorite aquatic or riparian plant? (sighs) That's the hardest question. question. Yeah. 
That's a really hard question. Um, I love buttonbush. Nice. Uh, that's a good choice. Buttonbush is a great plant. Brings in a lot of bugs. Uh, super easy to propagate. Um, I, I love any plant that does those two things, right? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I love it. Again, sorry for the challenging question right at the end there. But uh, again, Evan, thank you so much for your time. And um, yeah, keep up the amazing work. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you for having us. Of course. Cheers. All right. Wasn't that incredible? It was really uplifting. You don't think you're going into a conversation about endangered species and extinction and coming out feeling like there is hope. I really thank Evan for taking time out of their busy schedule to talk with us. And as always, all of the relevant links are in the show notes. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. And while you're over there, look at all of the great ways to support this show. Like I said, you can buy a copy of my book. We have customizable merch as well as stickers. You can also become a patron and get a lot of kickbacks each month over at patreon.com slash plants. But that's entirely enough out of me for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.